In our prior episode, we went through Adolf Hitler's domestic policies that worked in conjunction to establish a unified Volksgemeinschaft. Today, we're going to look at his foreign policy. This resembled more of an aging Volkswagen slowly crawling towards its destination of world war. For the most part, I am not going to involve decisions regarding the Holocaust in this episode. Instead, I will isolate those events along the timeline in order to tell that story separately in the next episode. It is an event that simultaneously shows us the worst that humanity is capable of, as well as the depths of what humanity is capable of surviving. My intention of separating these two subjects is not to minimize the significance of the Holocaust in any way, or to not suggest that the two weren't extensions of each other. Hitler clearly intertwined his two simultaneous wars, making the war his means to his evil ends. His inability to separate the two may be what saved the entire world. For this moment, however, the plan is to talk exclusively about the run-up to World War II. This is episode number four in our series on Adolf Hitler, The Road to War. In 1936, Hitler introduced military conscription, an odd decision for a country that was at peace. More importantly, Germany was limited by the Treaty of Versailles as to how many soldiers it was allowed to have in its armed services. This was Hitler testing the boundaries examining how the Allies would react to his actions. The conscription measure was enacted to ensure that the German military was ready to launch offensives across Europe within four years. The planning for World War II had already begun. The actual war would break out just a few months earlier than he had planned for in September of 1939. The Conscription Act was responsible for four of the six million jobs that the Nazis created, and many of those other jobs were created to support their new military men as they needed food, uniforms, and weapons. In March of 1936, Adolf Hitler took his first aggressive measure against the Treaty of Versailles. This was the equivalent of doing something that you knew was wrong to test how your mother or father would react. You knew it was wrong, but you still wanted to see what would happen. The Rhineland was a large area of land along the German-Belgian border. It had been forcibly demilitarized in order to create a buffer zone for France if Germany ever decided to repeat their World War I efforts. This would ensure that the destructive trench battles would occur on German soil rather than French. In this way, you could make the argument that the planning for World War II began in 1919. Additionally, the Rhineland was home to the economically productive coal-rich Ruhr region. International control via the French and Belgians who invaded the Ruhr after Weimar had missed a series of war payments ensured that Germany would never be able to pay back the reparations that the Treaty of Versailles had imposed upon them. This was of course by design as the French desired nothing more than the permanent elimination of Germany as a threat. Although remilitarization and control of the Ruhr were always a necessity for Adolf Hitler's grand scheme, he had begun thinking about it as early as 1933, the pretext for this event came in the form of the revelation of the Franco-Soviet Treaty of Mutual Assistance. This treaty publicly reinforced the notion that France would do anything and everything to maintain Germany's weakness. Hitler loudly proclaimed that the French-Russian pact was aimed towards him and thus a violation of the 1925 Locarno Treaty, which was the treaty that had officially demilitarized the Rhineland. He argued that he didn't have to abide by a treaty when the French were not. This was a massive gamble for Germany's leader. Everything was done in public, as if he were just waiting to be reprimanded. He even gave orders to his commanders to back down if France mobilized against the move. 
The French, however, froze at the cost of action. And I literally mean cost. The generale in charge of the decision viewed the situation in terms of the worst-case scenario. Rather than standing up to Hitler and forcing him to back down, which we know that he would have at this moment, the French military command believed that they would have to mobilize the entire French army to dislodge the Nazis, the cost of which would be 30 million francs per day. This was unacceptable to the French regime, which was in the midst of a re-election campaign. The cost of mobilization would require either a massive foreign loan or a default on their currency, neither of which would help them remain in power. So due to politics, the French froze, hoping instead to find a continental commitment rather than a unilateral solution. To this, Britain did not oblige. Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin claimed with tears in his eyes that Britain also lacked the resources to enforce the Treaty of Versailles. MP Harold Nicholson revealed that public opinion was anti-war, stating that, quote, the feeling in the House of Commons is terribly pro-German, which means afraid of war. Instead of outrage, the British offered justifications for the German action. Lord Lothian pointed out that the reoccupation of the Rhineland was no different than the Germans invading their own backyard. What came next was a series of moves that Adolf Hitler would repeat over and over again for the next four years. It's also a move that Russian dictator Vladimir Putin would imitate during his 2014 invasion of Ukraine and subsequent annexation of Crimea. It will be repeated so much, we'll just call it Hitler's move. First, Hitler claimed innocence and justified all of his actions as necessary. He always painted himself as the good guy, a reluctant leader that was forced into action to save his people. In this case, he argued that the Franco-Soviet pact directly threatened Germany. He asked the world if a nation were allowed to defend its own borders, pointing out that he would be committing treason against his own country if he refused to protect it. He also pointed to violations against Germans living in the area, even though many times this oppression was a direct result of Nazi agitators sent in to disrupt the status quo. The second portion of this move involved offering a set of assurances to the world that he would go no further. In this case, he committed Germany to rejoining the League of Nations, an organization which had already proven inadequate at preventing international crises in regard to Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, as well as signing an air pact to outlaw bombing as a way of war and a non-aggression pact with all of France. All of these promises were empty, however. Although they joined the League, the Nazis had no intention of participating in a meaningful manner. A non-aggression pact fit the Führer's timetable for the moment, but it was meaningless in the long term. And within a few months, Adolf would commence aerial bombardment of civilian populations in Spain, thus proving that promise hollow. The final step in this move of Hitler was to retroactively cover up his incursion with a falsified election. In this instance, Hitler held a vote, or a placebite, among all Germans. The vote was 99% in favor of the action. A landslide such as that doesn't do much to sway international opinion. Historians are trained to automatically disbelieve any vote that is near unanimous. There just isn't anything in this world that 99% of the population can agree on. Historians know the inside view on another infamous 99% election, 
It was one that we approved of in Vietnam. CIA advisor Edward Lansdale went on the record telling our Vietnamese ally Go Dien Diem that while I'm away, I don't want to suddenly read that you have won by 99.9%. I would know it was rigged then, he said. Diem listened to Lansdale and the final vote in the 1955 referendum turned out to be 98.9% in favor of his government a government which regularly had peaceful Buddhist monks engulfing themselves in flames to protest. Making Diem's actions even stupider was the fact that the U.S. estimated that he would have comfortably won by 60-70% to 70% in a free and fair election. Similarly, it is clear that the Nazis' actions were heavily approved of and that they would have won a fair and free democratic vote but no action ever receives 99% approval. This was the concept in action of Adolf's big lie. Mein Kampf explains Hitler's belief that the people will see a big lie, such as a 99% accurate vote, as so ridiculous that they wouldn't possibly believe that somebody could have made it up. In this instance, there must be no way that they rigged it because anyone rigging it would definitely not have put it at 99%. The vote's retroactive approval served to show the world that Hitler and Germany were applying democratic principles to their assertive actions. They weren't invading, rather, they were aiding individuals and regions that were begging for their assistance. Thus, the Hitler move. Take an action that you know will be unpopular. Tell the world you won't do it again and offer up some small concessions that you have no intention of fulfilling. Then retroactively get the action that you already took of approved, even if it means falsifying the results. For anybody wondering about what I said regarding Vladimir Putin imitating this move in his annexation of Crimea, that referendum was alleged to have been won by 95.5% of the voters. Control of the Ruhr allowed Adolf to access important energy sources and iron factories to further build up his military. This remilitarized land would be turned into the West Wall Siegfried Line, a direct challenge and response to France's Maginot Line. The lines were literally being drawn for the coming conflict. All of this was in violation of Versailles, but the Allies looked the other way, particularly when the Nazis went to war in Spain later in 1936. To back up a little, in 1931 the Spanish monarchy was overthrown and replaced with a republic. Like most republics in the 1930s, this replacement republic didn't fare too well through the Great Depression. Francisco Franco, the man who would go on to rule as Spain's dictator until 1975, landed North African troops to take the city of Seville, thus starting the Spanish Civil War. So what does this have to do with Germany, a nation that doesn't even share a border with Spain? Although it's an oversimplification of the conflict, the Spanish Civil War was characterized as a fight between right-wing nationalists and left-wing communists. The specter of Russian communism still hung over all European capitals and was viewed as a significant threat by all of the nations that had signed the Treaty of Versailles. All nations agreed that Spain could not become the second European nation to suffer a communist revolution. Still shell-shocked from World War I, however, Britain chose to ignore the conflict. France surprisingly sent some aid to the Socialist Republicans for fear that a nationalist win would present Germany and Italy with a fascist ally that would complete France's encirclement. Franco feared French involvement the most and took numerous steps to leave troops behind to deter possible invasions from French-held Catalonia the Balearic Islands, and Morocco. Germany did much more. 
1936 it sent the newly formed Condor Legion to aid Franco's nationalists. This support consisted of roughly 13,500 soldiers, 127 machine guns, 40 Panzer I tanks, and 92 airplanes, a technology that had just begun to be used in warfare as scouts during the previous World War I. The only other nation to enter the war directly was Communist Russia. Germany's propaganda machine spun its involvement as guarding against the spread of communism, something that both the United States and Great Britain could get behind. In reality, Adolf Hitler was testing out his military principles of Blitzkrieg and the effectiveness of the aerial bombardment of civilian targets, something that he had specifically signed a treaty to outlaw. The Spanish Civil War allowed the Germans to test their new military technology in the field. It also brought them closer together with Mussolini's fascist Italy, who definitely desired a nationalist victory in Spain. Meanwhile, England and France were powerless to enforce the Treaty of Versailles limitations on the military size of Germany, as it was viewed by the world that Germany was fighting on their behalf against communism. Likewise, it further drove a wedge between the Soviets and England and France. Although the French took covert actions to help the socialists in Spain, both publicly took stances against Russian involvement in a conflict so far from their home territory. This suspicion contributed to the Soviets seeking a separate peace agreement with the Nazis at the onset of the war. For their involvement, the newly installed Franco regime agreed to economic trade deals, which would grant Hitler access to valuable raw materials that would further aid his efforts to build up an army that was capable of defeating his European enemies. Thus, 1936 was a key year in the build-up to World War II. Hitler had tested the Allies as well as his move and had emerged victorious each time. The early military tests in Spain were proving that the new German military techniques were vastly superior to conventional World War I tactics, and he had successfully pulled off hosting the Olympic Games. The world was spinning off of its axis with the world power set on a collision course. It was time for everyone to choose a side. In October, the world's two fascist leaders aligned and signed the Rome-Berlin Axis Pact. Then, in November, Japan and Germany signed the Anti-Comatern Pact. Germany's economic plan called for them to be ready in four years. They were ahead of schedule. Nineteen thirty-seven was a relatively quiet year on the foreign policy front for Germany. Among the events that are relevant to our discussion was the opening of the Buchenwald concentration camp. Buchenwald would go on to become one of the most notorious camps during the Holocaust, leaving behind stories such as the Singing Forest, named so because of the screams emanating from prisoners suffering from the strapado a torture technique that had been perfected by the Spanish Inquisition, as well as Ilse Koch, the witch of Buchenwald, who singled out individuals who had tattoos that she liked. They were then selected from the line, executed, had their tattoo with the skin still attached, sliced, tanned, and turned into lampshades which she placed in her home. At this point in 1937, Buchenwald was home to political prisoners. It wasn't until 1938 that they received their first large influx of Jewish prisoners. 1938 became known as the fateful year. It was during this year that the Nazis radicalized their anti-Semitism and lurched towards their eventual policy of extermination as an answer to the so-called Jewish question. It was also the year in which the next major step towards World War II occurred. Austria was the birth nation of Adolf Hitler, 
and would go on to play a role in two of his major foreign policy objectives. First was Anschluss, which is defined loosely as reuniting the Germanic peoples under one nation. Germany had only recently formed a central government and had a long history of tribal confederacies. This meant that lots of people living in Central and Eastern Europe could claim Germanic heritage. His second foreign policy aim was referred to as Lebensraum, or living space. For this aim, he sought to ensure that the Germanic people, after they had been united beneath Nazi Germany, had the elbow room necessary for expansion and invention. This meant economically and agriculturally productive land would have to be absorbed for his people to live off of. Hitler added an element to his move in 1938. Four years earlier in 1934, Austrian Nazi sympathizers had revolted against their government and attempted a coup. The coup had been planned in Germany with the explicit permission of Adolf Hitler. It was put down by Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, however, who didn't want to contribute to any additional instability along their border. Although the coup was put down, it claimed the life of the Austrian Chancellor. His replacement, Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnigg, therefore was acutely aware of the danger the Nazis posed. He cracked down on the actions of Nazi sympathizers and arrested would-be pro-German forces. This addition to the move involved the claim that Austria was violating the rights of German citizens within its borders. He proposed annexing his birth nation as a way of ensuring that those German citizens would be protected. He argued that it was the obligation of a nation to care for its people, no matter where they happened to live. The initial decision to add Austria, at all costs, was made during the summer of 1937. Hitler informed his commanders of the plan to seize Austria and Czechoslovakia via small-scale limited wars. The intent was to seize their economic wealth in order to propel themselves ahead of France and England in the arms buildup in preparation for the coming conflict. Austria was fully aware of the Fuhrer's intentions. Schuschelsnig met privately with Hitler in his private residence of Buschisgarden, in hopes of avoiding conflict at the 11th hour. His hopes were immediately dashed. Adolf strategically posed his top three generals behind him for effect, and then proceeded to blast the Austrian prime minister for two straight hours. At one point, he said, You don't seriously believe you can stop me or even delay me for half an hour, do you? The Great Depression and the aftermath of World War I had devastated the economy and social fabric of the now-fated Habsburg-Austrian Empire. Showing that he had an in-depth understanding of the geopolitics of the moment, Hitler also said, Don't think for one moment that anyone on Earth is going to thwart my decisions. Italy? I see eye to eye with Mussolini. England? England will not move one finger for Austria. And France? France had its moment to stop me. Now is too late for France. Later that afternoon, the Austrian Chancellor was bullied into signing a document which would free all imprisoned Austrian Nazis, lift the band against the party, appoint a Hitler lackey as the new Minister of the Interior, which made them in charge of the police, and had Nazis appointed as Minister of War and Finance in order to make preparations for the quote-unquote assimilation of Austria's entire economy. Schuschelnig signed the document in part because all legally binding documents had to be agreed to by the President of Austria, and not the Chancellor. He left Hitler's palace in the Alps with an ultimatum to fulfill the pledge in three days. 
Twelve days after the encounter and nine after the ultimatum had passed, Schuschelnig publicly declared that Austria would never give up its independence. The Nazis responded by increasing the pressure in order to eat Austria alive from the inside. Emboldened Nazi agitators picked up on the public declarations coming out of Berlin and began attacking the state apparatus, brazenly replacing Austrian flags with one marked by the swastika. Economic panic quickly ensued. Tourism halted and small provinces were, for all practical purposes, seized by Austrian Nazis. On March 13th, Chancellor Schuschelnig took one last measure designed to protect their independence. He ordered a public referendum. Expecting Austrians to vote against joining Germany would put international pressure on England and France to guarantee Austria's independence. Upon hearing of this decision, Hitler immediately and without consultation ordered the German army to prevent the vote. He fired off a letter to Italy falsely claiming that Austria and Czechoslovakia were planning to restore the Habsburg monarchy in order to attack Germany. Two days before the scheduled vote, the Austrian government became aware of the impending invasion. They canceled the upcoming vote in order to avoid bloodshed. But it was too late. Mussolini had announced to the Fuhrer that Austria was immaterial to his plans. Thus, he would not interfere. At dawn on March 12th, a day before the vote was scheduled, German soldiers crossed the border. There was no resistance. In fact, large numbers of Austria's 7 million ethnic Germans welcomed them like heroes. France and England remained frozen in place, unable to find their backbones as such a brazen violation of international norms norms which they had set up in the aftermath of World War I. The Germans next sought to legitimize the takeover. They published false news stories about their soldiers rescuing oppressed Germans and fighting in the streets against the true coup that the Germans had thwarted, one that had been attempted by the Austrian Communist Party. They even photoshopped together a false telegraph from Austria's government, which asked the Germans to send in their troops to restore order. Hitler presented to the world a picture of the Austrians, desperate to restore order to the chaos, requesting military assistance from Germany. He wasn't the bad guy. He was once again the savior of the international order. On March 13th, the original date of the vote, the Austrian government passed a law approving the annexation of Austria to Germany. For this moment in history, Austria, the nation, had ceased to exist. It was now a mere province of the German Reich. Another vote occurred on April 10th, this time a placebite from the people. 99% of the Austrian voters selected yes. This election was blatantly rigged, the ballot wasn't secret, thus an individual voting no could automatically expect immediate violent retaliation from the Nazis who worked the polls. Anti-Jewish violence spiked immediately throughout the former nation. Jewish men and women were grabbed at random by Nazis and forced to scrub walls clean of any pro-independence slogans. Thousands were jailed, and Jewish homes and businesses were looted by the SS. The Nuremberg Laws were immediately extended to the province, and Austrian Adolf Eichmann set up an office for Jewish emigration, which would extort money and valuables from Jews in return for permission to leave the country. The office was so successful in generating wealth that it became a model throughout German lands. By the end of 1941, 130,000 of the 180,000 Jews in Vienna had left behind all of their property in order to abandon the country of their birth. 
Chancellor Shushnig wasn't as lucky. He was arrested and spent several years in Dachau. Czechoslovakia was next, despite Hermann Göring's assurances in the wake of the Austrian annexation. He falsely stated that, quote, I give you my word of honor that Czechoslovakia has nothing to fear from the Reich. Hitler had already begun to plan the invasion a month before he uttered this. The fear was now a flush in cash, having transferred the entirety of Austria's central banks to Germany. This amounted to twice as much cash as what Germany had had before the invasion. He had also gained access to Austria's iron mines. But what he really wanted were weapons factories. For that, he had to go to the Sudentland. The Sudentland was the western edge of Czechoslovakia and was unfortunately home to three million ethnic Germans. Czechoslovakia itself had only been created in the aftermath of World War I and therefore was a garbled mix of different ethnic groups. Once again, the Nazis claimed that these ethnic Germans were being victimized by the Czech government. This region was an economic powerhouse during this moment in history. It was home to coal and copper mines. Its power stations were the envy of the area. It had fertile farm fields, which the Germans would need in the coming conflict. The Bohemian Alps were home to a chain of defensive fortresses, which could be used to guard Germany's back while it first dealt with France and England. But most importantly, it was home to the Skoda Arms Works the single largest arms maker in Europe. Skoda Arms was truly an impressive business. It had made the piping used in the Niagara Falls power plant, as well as the Suez Canal and Turkey's famous sugar mills. Their guns were found in conflicts as far as China and South America. The owners smartly invested their earnings from World War I and had massively expanded their operations. Their most famous product was the Panzer 35 tank. Although it was originally produced for the Czechoslovak army, the Panzer tank was the key to German victories that contributed to the fall of both Poland and France, as well as their nearly successful invasion of Russia. If Adolf's goal was to first catch up to and then surpass England and France in arms production, Skoda was invaluable and worth risking an earlier than planned outbreak of war. There wasn't much to worry about. Hitler's move had already worked multiple times. If they hadn't moved against him when he swallowed the country of Austria whole, why would they care if he occupied a mere portion of another country? Hitler also had a man on the inside. Konrad Heilin was the leader of the local German party, the second largest political party in Czechoslovakia. Heinlein's goal was to personally hand the Sudentalon over to the Fjord. He published false stories about the oppression of ethnic Germans and convinced the leader of the country that drastic measures were required to avoid war with Germany. The new industry-heavy country had suffered greatly during the Depression, and although their army was nearly the size of Germany's and they had the public support of France, the Soviet Union, and Yugoslavia, the Czechoslovakian government internally felt as though they were at the mercy of the Nazis. Instead of trusting their internal strength, they turned to British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in hopes of achieving salvation. We talked at length about Chamberlain's appeasement policy during our series on Amon de Valera. Chamberlain himself defined appeasement as the removal of barriers to peace. Think of it as clearing speed bumps along the road. Thus far, the British leader had not reacted forcibly to Germany's illegal rearmament, his retaking of the Rhineland, or his annexation of Austria. 
In his mind, the pursuit of peace meant sacrifices, and like a chess player protecting their queen, all of the pieces taken thus far could be described as pawns. England's involvement at this point is unique. They didn't view Germany's occupation of Czechoslovakia as the main problem. From their vantage point, that was inconsequential. The problem was that France had a historical agreement to defend Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain was 100% convinced that if France rose to the defense of their ally, that they would be quickly destroyed by the Germans. The loss of France would upset the balance of power in Germany's favor against England, who wasn't prepared at the moment to go it alone. Thus, Chamberlain entered the fray in order to first convince France to stand down, and then secondly, negotiate an agreement that all parties could stomach. To accomplish this, Chamberlain personally traveled to Hitler's home turf in order to size up his political opponent. He arranged for a series of meetings, with the first one occurring in Hitler's personal resort in the Alps. This was the same location in which the Fuhrer had bullied the former Chancellor of Austria. The British took contemporaneous notes that still survive in the historical archives. According to them, Hitler began the meeting speaking to great lengths about his desire for Anschluss, the uniting of all German people. Chamberlain interrupted, stating, quote, Hold on a minute. There is one point on which I want to be clear, and I will explain why. You say that the three million Sudeten Germans must be included in the Reich. Would you be satisfied with that? And is there nothing more you would want? I ask because there are many people who think that is not all, that you wish to dismember Czechoslovakia, end quote. Hitler responded that all he wanted was the Sudetenland, and that he was prepared to risk a world war rather than allow it to drag on. That's how the first meeting ended, with Chamberlain stating that, quote, if the fear is determined to settle this matter by force without waiting, even for a discussion between ourselves to take place, then I have wasted my time. Chamberlain knew the stakes. British General Ishmay sent the cabinet a note after the meeting, which included three conclusions. First, if Germany absorbed Czechoslovakia, it would increase Germany's war potential and enable her to field stronger land forces against both Britain and France. Secondly, Germany was ahead of the British and French regarding air power. Third, the general told the cabinet that, and I quote here, time is in our favor and that if war with Germany has to come, it would be better to fight her in, say, six to 12 months' time than to accept the present challenge. Perhaps stalling for time and angling to solve the problems through peaceful means, Chamberlain met Hitler a second time in Bad Goldsberg. He went into the meeting believing that resolving the conflict peacefully was on that which turns the peace of Europe in our time. The meeting went poorly from the beginning. Chamberlain presented Hitler with a proposal that Adolf himself had suggested seven days earlier at the first meeting. England and France would allow for the gradual transfer of portions of the Sudetenlohn, which contained a majority of ethnic Germans. The German leader rejected his own proposal, countering with demands of an immediate transfer of all of the Sudetenlohn. Shortly after the meeting, he revealed the contents of the private talks to the public at large. In the Godesberg Memorandum, Hitler publicly called for a placebite in Czechoslovakia along with the advancement of German military forces by October 1st. There would be no international commission assigned to oversee the transfer. The Memorandum ended with an ultimatum for the Czech government to accept these terms by September 28th, or to be prepared for war. Chamberlain raged at the turn of events, 
demanding to know why he had been presented with an ultimatum at what was supposed to be a discussion. Hitler cheekily pointed out that the document he had released was titled with the English word memorandum, and thus, according to the grammatical rules of English, couldn't be considered an ultimatum. The Prime Minister returned to London and ordered for the immediate preparation of war, a war that his top general believed they weren't ready for. The Royal Navy began to mobilize, and the French immediately ordered the mobilization of 600,000 soldiers. Czechoslovakia had mobilized 37 of its 47 divisions along the border, and the Germans had 39 divisions poised to attack. The deadline of September 28th arrived without a resolution. Instead of invading as he had promised, Hitler agreed to one last meeting with Chamberlain, this time in Munich. Chamberlain and Hitler were joined this time by Benito Mussolini of Italy and Edouard Daladier, who had become the Prime Minister of France just five months earlier. Daladier was under no false illusions about who Hitler was having claimed prior to the meeting that today it is the turn of Czechoslovakia. Tomorrow it will be the turn of Poland and Romania. When Germany has obtained the oil and wheat it needs, she will turn on the West. Certainly, he continued, we must multiply our efforts to avoid war, but that will not be obtained unless Great Britain and France stick together intervening in Prague for new concessions on the Sudeten Germans, but declaring at the same time that they will safeguard the independence of Czechoslovakia. If, on the contrary, the Western powers capitulate again, they will only precipitate the war they wish to avoid. Once again, a British leader was at an international conference sitting between an all-forgiving Jesus, this time played by Mussolini, and a French punish-seeking Napoleon. Daladier had told a U.S. ambassador that he would much prefer war to the humiliation of the bad Godesberg terms. In what would soon become significant, there were no representatives invited from Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. Additionally, the two Czech diplomats waiting in a Munich hotel lobby were refused entry to witness a gathering that would decide the fate of their nation. In the meeting, Mussolini, an ally of Hitler, put forth the Munich Agreement. It had been prepared for him by the German Foreign Office and was nearly identical to Hitler's Godesberg Memorandum. Germany would complete its annexation of the Sudetenland by October 10th and an international commission would be allowed to oversee future disputed areas of Czechoslovakia. This time, England and France, despite Daladier's earlier comments about capitulation, accepted. The Czechoslovakian government was informed that they had to fight Germany alone, or submit to Hitler and lose only a portion of their territory. They did exactly that. The French and British leaders returned to their capitals to the sight of roaring crowds. Chamberlain told the press that he had achieved peace with honor, peace for our time. Winston Churchill, Parliament's opposition leader, responded negatively, saying that Chamberlain had been given the choice between war and dishonor. He personally challenged Chamberlain by stating plainly, you chose dishonor and you will have war. The Frenchman expected to be assailed by the Parisians. Faced with the opposite of what he had expected, he simply said, Ah, the fools. If only they knew. Although he did not want to abandon his Eastern European allies, he knew that France could not win without England on its side. The Munich Conference appears to have been an opportunity for him to size up the willpower of Neville Chamberlain 
more than it had been for the Frenchman to figure out Adolf Hitler. If you've been wondering where the United States was during all of these essential moments, the U.S. Congress had passed the first of the so-called Neutrality Acts in 1935, which prevented President Franklin Delano Roosevelt from interfering. This was done in part to prevent a repetition of a president tricking Congress into war, a la Woodrow Wilson in World War I. The Congressional Joint Resolution was so popular that FDR signed it into law, tying his own hands behind his back. Perhaps the most powerful chess piece in this game was never even placed on the board. As amazing as these events were, it was only October of 1938. World War II won't fully break out until September 1st, 1939. The powers that be spent every day for the next year preparing for the outbreak of the war. It was as if it were now foreordained and unpreventable. On October 1st, 1938, the Germans occupied the Sudentland. As was their way, they then issued a placebite, absent again were the protections guaranteed by a secret ballot. The annexation left the rest of Czechoslovakia weak and defenseless. Keep in mind that their entire line of Alp defensive fortifications were now in the hands of their enemy. Blood was in the water, and both Poland and Hungary proceeded to annex portions of the nation where their ethnic majorities resided. Czechoslovakia was a helpless victim slowly being sliced up by their captors. Hitler invited Slovak leadership to Germany and convinced them to declare an independent Slovak state. He then violated the recently signed Munich Agreement and annexed significant portions of the Czech part of the Republic to his Sudetenland holdings. Sensing that this was all taking too long, Hitler presented a final ultimatum to the Czech leadership on March 15, 1939. He presented two options. Cooperate with Germany, in which case the entry of German troops would take place in a tolerable manner, at least for those that were not Jewish. If they chose this course, Czechoslovakia would have a generous life of her own, he said, autonomy and a degree of national freedom. Option two was a scenario in which resistance would be broken by force of arms using all available means. The second option would begin with a city-wide bombing of Prague. Emil Hacha, the president of Czechoslovakia, literally suffered a heart attack upon hearing the terms. He capitulated and turned over power to the Germans. In this great game, it was Czech and mate for his people. Poland would be next. It was another country that arose out of the ashes of World War I, and the port city of Danzig was high on Hitler's wish list. His success had emboldened him. At this point, he fully believed that the leaders who opposed him were paper tigers. His prior success had convinced him that they would always back down. Danzig was a semi-autonomous, internationally-run area that included 200 towns. Hitler wanted it for its access to ports, which would be critical in the coming war against the British Royal Navy. And just to fulfill Anschultz, there were also some ethnic Germans living there. The Germans knew how to run this play by now. Nazi sympathizers went into Danzig and began causing trouble. After they were locked up, the Nazis claimed that they were being unfairly oppressed, and expressed that it was their moral obligation to protect those ethnic Germans under the policy of Anschultz. This time, Chamberlain stepped up and publicly promised on March 31st that Britain would support the Poles against any incursion of their borders. The French followed with their own pledge to defend Poland. But at least two world leaders didn't believe the Allies. Obviously one of them was Adolf Hitler, 
who continued to proceed forward with his plans to annex Poland. The other, however, was Joseph Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union. Russia neither trusted nor followed the lead of Britain and France. Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London, had this to say of the public defense pledge. Quote, Knowing the English and the traditions of British foreign policy, I could not accept that Chamberlain would make any firm commitments in Eastern Europe. This lack of trust led to the final step in Hitler's preparations for World War II. The direct result of it was the unthinkable Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. On August 23, 1939, German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop came to an agreement with Soviet Foreign Minister Yugoslav Molotov. The treaty stipulated a non-aggression pact between the Germans and the Soviets, meaning that the two sides agreed to not be the one to strike first. Throughout this talk, I have referred to the Allies, but exclusively talked about England and France. Perhaps you assumed the Soviets were on board. If you did, then you made the same assumptions as the French and the Brits. Those two Western powers had also taken the Soviets for granted in their calculations. There were a few facts that blinded them to what would occur on the 23rd of August. First, they knew for a fact that Hitler hated communists, particularly the Bolsheviks. They never could have imagined that the Nazis would be able to come to an understanding with a group whom they regularly characterized as the devil. Secondly, they imagined that the Soviets were in significantly better military shape than they were in World War I. Stalin had violently led the forced industrialization of the nation and was halfway through the second of his five-year plan. Because of this, Russia was finally modernizing. Finally, they thought that they could exploit this hatred between the two dictators for their own benefit. The belief among the West was that Hitler would exhaust himself fighting the improved Red Soviet Army. England and France then would be able to defeat the worn-out Germans, and possibly even move against their likewise weakened allies, the Soviets. Remember that everyone in the West was terrified of communism catching on. A normal leader might only focus on the enemy in front of them, but a notoriously paranoid leader such as Joseph Stalin, would see all of the nefarious possibilities that lurked in the corners of men's minds. While there's no actual evidence of that last bullet point, the one where the West would first tire out and then invade the Soviet Union, a treacherous snake such as Stalin would have expected others to think exactly like him. Therefore, he decided to pull the old switcheroo on the Allies. Let's look at each of the mistaken thoughts that led up to this travesty of a non-aggression pact. Yes, Hitler and Stalin were ideologically opposed, but they were each willing to look the other way if it was in their interest to do so. After the British agreed to defend the Poles, Hitler stated bluntly to his cabinet that when Germany's life is at stake, even a temporary alliance with Moscow must be contemplated. Upon seeing films of Stalin observing a military parade, something that is near universal on the fun list for dictators, the fear remarked that this looked like a man he could do business with. He clearly had a soft spot for other authoritarians, which clearly then overwhelmed his racist instincts. After all, Hitler was already allied with emperors Hirohito of Japan and Benito Mussolini of Italy. As for Stalin, the communist, he didn't demonstrate much belief in Lenin or Marx's version of communism while he was in power. There was no equality in the Union or pleased proletariats working for the glorious sake of work. Instead, the so-called man of steel was all about the accumulation of power for himself. An agreement with Germany not only would prevent war, but would allow Stalin to expand his empire west without any bloodshed. 
The second bullet point was that the Soviet military was significantly stronger than it had been during its failed World War I campaign. This was also unfortunately false. While modernization and industrialization had grown by leaps and bounds, the Red Army remained radically unprepared for war. Stalin had just completed a purge of the highest ranks of the Soviet military. This was the first of what would become many great purges in Soviet Russia, and they would spread to other state institutions. This left the leadership at the top inexperienced and hesitant to stick their neck out for fear of being the next victim of their unstable party leader. Stalin reportedly began planning for the day that Hitler would betray him upon hearing about their completed peace agreement. Although it was supposed to last for ten years, the pact would gain Stalin two more years of war preparation time. As a show of how aware Stalin was of the overall situation, he reportedly said, We got peace for our country for 18 months, which lets us make military preparations. The last bullet point was the idea that the Allies were attempting to tire out the Germans by pitting them against the Soviets first. There appears to be some truth to this. Immediately after England and France publicly declared their intentions to support Poland, they entered into negotiations to solidify their alliance with Stalin's Russia. But according to the Russians, the talks lacked urgency. The sides spoke of expanding territory towards Germany, but the British just let the Soviets talk as they refused to come to any official agreement by the designated end time of each meeting. The diplomats just told the Russians that their thoughts were interesting, and perhaps by the next meeting they could come to a formal agreement. Worse, while Chamberlain traveled three times to personally meet with Hitler, he sent a medium-level foreign office diplomat to speak to Stalin. Further suggesting a lack of urgency, these trips were conducted via slow-moving boat rather than plane. It is likely that Stalin's status as a communist combined with the recent memory of Russia dropping out of World War I, prevented Chamberlain from truly trusting him. It is also just as fair to say that Chamberlain's status as a capitalist prevented Stalin from truly trusting him as well. By agreeing to a mutually beneficial alliance, Stalin would also have the opportunity to force England and France to have the first go at Germany. After those three wore each other out, the West would be ripe for a revolutionary takeover. The treaty negotiations with the Germans had the urgency that Stalin craved. It only took seven hours to complete. In addition to a 10-year non-aggression pact, the two sides negotiated a secret protocol within the agreement. This secret accord redefined the borders of the Soviet and German spheres of influence. Effectively, they carved up Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Finland. The two dictators were able to maintain the secrecy of this portion of the agreement right up until the Nuremberg trials after the war. With knowledge that the Soviet Union would not object, and the belief that despite public claims otherwise, England and France would once again capitulate on their word and honor, Hitler invaded Poland on September 1, 1939. Like any two schemers trying to avoid being caught, Moscow invaded the other side of Poland a mere 17 days later just long enough to claim that their invasion was an unplanned coincidence. The two invading forces were quickly able to hammer out a dividing line, indeed considering that they had negotiated before either side invaded. Thus, by the end of September, Russia and Germany peacefully shared a border in Eastern Europe. While both England and France immediately declared war on Germany for the unlawful invasion, neither rushed to Poland's aid. This was also not a surprise. Molotov regularly referred to Poland as the ugly brainchild of the Versailles Treaty, 
After quickly defeating the Polish army, the Germans and Soviets each established brutal regimes that utilized terror to control their subjects. Mass executions, such as the Katyn massacre, are often overlooked by students learning about World War II. In Katyn, the USSR murdered 22,000 Polish military officers and intelligence officers. These atrocities are oftentimes overlooked because of the sheer scale of the Holocaust in Poland and the fact that it was committed by what would become an ally in the war against genocide. The invasion of Poland in September of 1939 not only officially began World War II, it marked the start of a deadly new phase in Hitler's first war, the Holocaust. On the next episode, we will trace the phases of the Holocaust, from anti-Semitic discrimination to their ultimate end, the Nazi death camp.